Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. We're continuing our series on liquid alts and alternative ETFs. And today we're talking about hedge funds and some intriguing new ETFs that compete with them. And joining me is Andrew Beer, who's co-founder of Dynamic Beta Investments, aka DBI. Andrew, welcome to the show. Andy, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Happy New Year, by the way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Happy New Year. Happy yeah. New Year, I, I, think, yeah. I think this will be airing uh, maybe late January, but we're recording on the fifth. Um, okay. In case the markets like plummet and then recover in between or something, but. I, I want to dive into the liquid alts market and and some of these unique strategies uh, in your ETFs. But first, could you give us a brief introduction to your company, your career, and and how long you've been around? Sure. Uh, so I've been around for a long time. I actually started in the hedge fund industry in 1994, um, doing very traditional hedge fund things. And then uh, in the early 2000s, I was known for having started uh, hedge funds, one in the commodity space and another one in the greater China region. And I, I always, everything I always did, I did with partners. Um, but you know, my, my obsession over the past 15 years is now what has become the liquid alts world, which is if you want the diversification benefits of a given hedge fund strategy, but you can only access it through a mutual fund or an ETF or some other uh, you know, lower cost, daily liquid regulated vehicle, how do you actually do that? And well, I guess, can you do that? And how do you actually do that? So um, our business is, is focused on one very specific way of doing that, in that we do something called hedge fund replication. And the idea of hedge fund replication is that in certain hedge fund strategies, a handful of big trades drives all their performance. Mm -hmm. And if you can figure out what the big trades are today, then if you can copy them and do it efficiently, you tend to do as well or better than the actual hedge funds. But because you're not investing in hedge funds, which have high minimums, illiquidity, et cetera, you can then also package it in a mutual fund or an ETF. And in the US, we, we, we've set up and run two ETFs that are really designed to bring two specific hedge fund strategies, equity long short, and then manage futures to the broader ETF world, which as, as I think you probably know from your experience, has had a very, very, very hard time building hedge fund strategies in an ETF vehicle that are anything other than terrible. Um, and so we're trying to really change that perception and, and really get down to the, the the principles as to what it is that people are looking for and how to get there. Yeah. And I, I guess a little personal question, because I can hear the passion in your voice just talking mm -hmm. about this. Uh, with DBI, are, are you more an entrepreneur who saw this segment that was ripe for you know, market disruption? Or are you more of like an academic nerd who's like, just, I, I want to solve this riddle. You know, this keeps me up at night. <laughs> I, I, I am I am absolutely both. So um, so I, I almost went into academia. Uh, when I was at Harvard Business School, I was recruited to, I, I basically had three job choices. I could have uh, gone into academia. I was recruited to go into the doctoral program. Uh, I also, I really thought I was actually going to be a private equity guy. It's kind of where my 
I like the kind of slow, deliberate, you know, information based approach of private equity. And then I had this chance meeting, uh, an interview with a hedge fund, and I just thought it was really cool what they were doing. It was, it was very off the run and it, it you know, kind of appealed to, to, I would say the, the nerdy side. Um, the, um, when I, I didn't intend, people have called me a disruptor in the space. I didn't intend to be, right? I, it was basically in 2007, 2006, 2007, one of the, this, this, this issue is of, of can I get hedge fund performance, but with liquidity was a huge issue across the space because you had fund of funds and institutional investors who desperately wanted more client-friendly ways of getting exposure to the space. And when I heard about this quantitative approach, and I'm not a quant, but but you know I often joke that if I can't write it out on a napkin, it's not something I would do. But but this idea of basically using established risk models to figure out what big hedge funds are doing, it made sense not just to me, but I would go talk to actual hedge fund managers. I talked to the guys at Valpost where I started my career and said, hey, if I could figure out with pretty good precision what major markets you're in. Do you think I would do similar to you? And every hedge fund I spoke to said, of course, right? It's always about the big trades. We love to talk about the, you know, 1% position that we just put on last week, but that doesn't move the PL needle. We've no. got to have big exposure to EM or short value or long growth or vice versa. And um, and so what happened was uh, I, I got the door slammed in my face a hundred times out of a hundred times. <laughs> and, and, and so, so I, you know, and I don't know, there's a, just sort of a doggedness to it. I, I, It's been such a strange 15 years in that we've done better than anyone possibly could have expected, right? When people, our, our strategic investor bought a stake in us in 2018, they'd spent two years looking at the liberal world. They said, we've never found anybody who's done better than hedge funds with lower drawdowns, low fees and daily liquidity. But you know, why aren't you guys huge? And then I described all the issues that a lot of people who were just not interested in what we were doing because it wasn't, it was boring, right? It was index-like. And so um, so when they took a stake in us, it was basically, let's try to find the right audience for your products. Mm-hmm. And so in, in a sense, with this whole business, and my, my, you know, we have managed a bit over $2 billion now, and we grew three times last year. And But, you know, my friends constantly mock me about this 15-year overnight success story because they saw me for years and years and years. You know, every year I would say, you know, I bet institutional consultants would like it. And then they would slam the door in my face. Or I yeah. bet these guys would like it and they would slam the door in my face. And so so I, I think in the ETF world, we finally found it. And and how we ended up getting to it, you know, it was, it was sort of a long, drawn-out process. But but it's it's uh, we're very excited about the opportunity set today. Yeah, n- nothing... Um... Nothing teaches you like getting doors slammed in your face, right? But and on that note, actually, so on the alternative investment podcast, historically to date, we've mostly covered illiquid alternative investments, and we haven't covered the liquid side as much. But increasingly, you know, liquid alts, illiquid alts, some of these lines are being blurred, and these products are competitive. And where I'd like to start, I'd like to actually zoom out for a second and talk about traditional hedge funds, right? Because it's important. It's important to understand traditional hedge funds, what they do well, as well as you know what are their drawbacks, right? So, obviously, um, your your product is is competing or it exists because there are drawbacks to hedge funds, but they also must have some utility and some value for investors or high net worth investors, family offices, institutionals. 
wouldn't be, you know, giving them capital year in, year out for decades now, right? So, so what do hedge funds do well and, and what do they not do well? So when you say hedge funds, first of all, the thing you have to understand is there are a million different kinds of hedge funds. And within each of those categories, or there are lots of different categories of hedge funds, and with each individual category, it's like saying equities, and then you know you can kind of break that down into categories and industries, etc. Um, and and the thing you know, so some of the truisms about the hedge fund industry are that most strategies wax and wane over time. Like so, managed futures was the hit strategy last year. Um, you know, equity, long, short, and macro, discretionary, macro were basically on their back heels going into 2020, and then both had suddenly good years. Um, uh, the other kind of, the other truism is that with the exception of possibly a handful of people, literally nobody knows who's going to do well next year, right? So, so you've got the hedge fund industry here, and then a whole allocation infrastructure built on top of it that is expensive, and the hedge funds themselves are expensive, and, and the whole infrastructure is built on the fiction that, the, that, that, that we won't invest in the average fund. Um, and so. And by the way, is, is, two, is two and 20 still the standard or has there been any? Uh, well, it's, 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 there's, there's been a huge bifurcation. I mean, some funds can't raise money no matter how much they drop their price, but yeah. the largest funds are raising fees. Um, so, and they're telling investors, if you want to stay invested with us, you can't get out for five years. Um, and then even then you can get out a little bit each quarter. So, you know, I have sort of a complicated relationship with this because I think people wildly overpay for certain hedge fund strategies a lot. And then I, but I also think that other hedge funds, I'm sort of known as somebody who's, who's, who's written a lot about this. My first editorial in the Financial Times was talking about how 80% of hedge fund alpha was paid away in fees. Um, on the other hand, I'm also a guy who thinks that certain hedge funds are worth every penny. You know, these multi-strategy hedge funds that are like elephants dancing on, you know, the, the bow of a ship in a hurricane with a, and balancing a martini on, on, on their fingers. Like their agility in these markets has been incredible. While everything else has been going up and down, they've just coasted right through it wow. and, and put up tremendous returns. So, so, but I think, I think, you know, hedge funds, um, overall, you've got tremendously smart people. Right, you have opportunities that come up that they will capitalize on that the average investor cannot capitalize on. The inflation trade, right? The average investor. I was talking to people about the inflation trade back in early 2021 because a, a hedge fund legend named Stan Druckenmiller basically raised his hand and said, "You know, everybody thinks that inflation is never going to be coming back. We're going to have low rates forever." And I think that's probably wrong. And and when I heard him say that, I used to kind of joke that. Taking the other, so this is this is the guy who was Soros's right hand man when when they bet against the pound in in the 1990s, and he's probably the greatest macro investor of the past 40 years. As like you know, taking the other side of the trade from Stan Druckenmiller is generally investment suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you wouldn't Warren Buffett buys a stock, you wouldn't say you know it's a terrible idea in general. So, um, but I went out and talked to people, and and what I realized was that people really didn't have things. A typical advisor didn't have things in their toolkit to deal with this change in the world. You know, were they really going to go out and start shorting treasuries? Were they going to start making a big bet on certain segments of the commodity markets? Were they going to make big currency plays? Uh, you know, were they going to... And, and what are you going to take a 60-40 portfolio and, and remove all the bonds, you know, for... Well, that's... It's, I mean, right, so yeah. people were locked in, right? So the overall... The, most of the investment world is locked into their positions, 
in some way and they'll and they'll move a little bit but they can't move very much and sure. you know one of the things i've learned in 30 years of doing this is you can take an incredibly smart guy and layer all sorts of constraints on him and in general he's not going to do that much better than the guy who you think he's a lot smarter than you know constraints and so so the the hedge funds in the early days had no constraints you wake up on Jan 1 in the morning and you could be doing something completely different that year than what you're doing the prior year. As the business has become institutionalized, it's become much harder for them to change. And I was just quoted a couple of times talking about some of these, you know, hedge funds with big tech exposure. Well, if you're, a, you know, now there are tech focused hedge funds and 20 years ago, somebody might've been a tech focused hedge fund one year, then an emerging market specialist two years later, they don't really pivot and change the way that they do. Yeah. Um, but but overall, okay, you've got you've got tremendously smart people who are who have a lot more flexibility overall than a typical um, uh, advisor or family office who who they move in very very small increments and very slowly, and that the fact that ninety percent ninety five percent of the world's capital has those constraints and these guys don't just gives them an enormous advantage over time. Um, so I you know I've I've written actually quite favorably about hedge funds in the twenty twenties versus the two thousand tens. Because I think we're going to look back on the 2010s and just think it was the weirdest period of financial history we've ever seen. I mean, all yeah, these it, things that just weren't supposed to happen just happened, and then they got worse. It's it sounds to me like there's almost a um, a disconnect between I want to say the marketing angle of I become known for this specific product segment or sector or subsector or this specific strategy. So that's what I have to sell as a hedge fund manager because I'm known for this and I know I can raise capital for this specific thing, but then that's a constraint and it's probably not going to outperform for three market cycles in a row or what, like part of the, the point is the flexibility, right? But we're to, as to sell product, it has to be a, a blue widget and I'm buying a blue widget and I want it to be blue. I'm expecting it to be blue. And 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 then you know and and you're looking at a guy who made money with five hundred million dollars in assets under management, and because he's done well, he's managing thirty two billion dollars today, mm -hmm. right? It's I mean when I started at this firm, Balpos, it's six hundred million in AUMs, and then fifteen years later it was thirty two billion dollars, right? So it just changes what you do, um, and I think you know I think the 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 hedge fund industry um, you know in a sense it became an asset class. And so, and, and during the 2010s, there were some, um, the, the people who control the capital that goes into hedge funds have always had a lot of influence on the industry. Um, and in the 2000s, it was a lot of fund of funds were siphoning capital into the industry. And then in the 2010s, it was institutional consulting firms. And my impression was that institutional consulting firms took the wrong lesson away from 2008 in that they looked at 2008 and they saw hedge funds. First of all, 2008 was a huge disappointment in the hedge fund industry. You have to remember that at the beginning of 2008, hedge funds looked like they could do no wrong. They'd gone into the dot-com crisis with actually about a 30% exposure to the equity markets. The equity markets go down 50% over the next few years and they're up. Like, how do you actually do that? Well, they were very long small cap value stocks and very short large cap growth stocks. And they held those positions for a long period of time. So it's not that their stock picks didn't go down. They went down 40, not 50. But a lot of their shorts went down 80%. Then by the time the subprime crisis rolled around, 
you know, again, there were a lot of hedge funds who were shorting subprime in 2004, 2005. They didn't make it to 2007, but the ones who made it, you know, they thought, you know, boy, if 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 the real estate market rolls over, my the subprime instrument that I'm shorting might go from uh, 100 to 80, and instead they went from 100 to 20, right? And so so you're coming off this period of these huge windfall profits. And if you ran an asset allocation model at the end of 2007, it shed, forget everything else, put 80% in hedge funds and 20% in cash. <laughs> then 2008 rolls around. And if you'd asked 100 allocators to hedge fund at the end of 2007, you know, we're going to have a big bear market next year and the world's going to implode. And you know, how much do you think hedge funds would go down? Everyone would have said flat, maybe up a little bit. They're hedged, right? Mm-hmm. They're supposed to. That's, those are the markets they, they, they live for. And equity markets went down 40 and they went down more than 20. Plus you had Madoff, right? Which which yeah. now Madoff wasn't just about Madoff, but Madoff was also about this collusion between hedge funds and accountants who were allowing them to pretty much mark anything wherever they wanted. So it's sort of a, it's a predecessor to what you're gonna, a lot of the noise you're hearing now about private assets and valuations and things. But what Madoff did is it kind of underscored that accountants would have risk if they, just blindly signed off on things. So you had this kind of unwinding of a lot of strategies that had never really had to mark down assets. All of a sudden, everything was happening sort of at the end of, end of, end of 2008. Um, and then the third thing you had was a lot of the allocators who like fund of funds that were allocating the space had promised their investors monthly liquidity. And that's back in 2007, that's the issue I was trying to solve for them. It's like, mm-hmm. give us some of your money so you can actually beat redemptions if they ever come. But for a lot of reasons, they decided that we would, if they did it with us, that we would cannibalize the rest of their business. Um, so, um, so those three things happened. And, and what, what institutional consultants kind of took from that, and a lot of family offices took from that, is we want our, we want our hedge fund portfolio to have zero beta, structurally, zero structural beta. And we're going to give all of our money to guys who didn't go down in 2008. And so what you ended up with a lot of very, very structurally market neutral funds that were supposed to do cash plus a few hundred basis points over time. So the problem was cash was zero for the next decade. Yeah. So what they were doing is they're taking these institutional portfolios and saying, it's okay to pay the guy 300 basis points because a year, because he had a great 2008. And then, but then the guy does two over the next five years after 300 basis points. And, and people suddenly start to question the whole hedge fund industry. Family offices realize that, you know, if you're doing three, four or 5% in a zero interest rate environment and, um, and, and you're paying a lot of taxes on it, sometimes it's not even being worth it, in this, it to be in the space. Go, go, so, buy a t- go buy a T-bill, right? Go I buy mean, T-bills or munis was always the comparison. Yeah. I'm, I'm, earning yeah. more on, I'm earning more on my local munis when I go on a, on a tax-affected basis. Yeah. You know, so by, by the end of the 2010s, hedge funds were really on their back. And, and you could say very credibly that, that the diversification argument for the whole space was essentially broken. But you also had another factor, which was you could not have a worse comparison period versus a traditional portfolio than the 2010s. 6040 worked, right? Somebody who threw their money into the S&P and just didn't pay attention for the next 10 years did better than almost any hedge fund out there. Somebody went into a 6040 portfolio and didn't look at it for 10 years, looked better than all these professional investors, I mean, 99% of professional investors. So you had a combination of a low interest rate environment, kind of institutionalization, kind of adding some constraints, plus a horrible comparison to traditional assets. 
and a lot of people gave up in the space at the moment that it started to recover. So, 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 and so, you know, so, so there's always this paradox with hedge funds is try to look at the past and figure out what the state of the world is going to look like. And yet it always seems to surprise us. Um, so we, we have certain ways of approaching it, but I think humility is probably the, 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 uh, the underlying principle that you have to kind of know where you can make reasonable bets in this space and not. I think that's a really good underlying principle. And, and, you know, that, well, that kind of brings me to the main dish here. Um, I want to bring up this article that you published on your website. I think this was from 2022 and the article was titled the index revolution finally comes to hedge funds. And and I'll make sure to link to this article in our show notes. Um, but I really appreciated how you explain in a really beginner friendly way, you know, for a dummy like myself, um, the idea of factor-based hedge fund replication, um, and for our listeners and viewers, th- this is a really key idea. So could you walk us, I think you've walked us through some of the history of hedge funds sure. themselves, but could you walk us through the history and theory of factor-based hedge fund replication? Sure. So it started in 2006 uh, and kind of the standard bearer was a professor at MIT named Andrew Lowe, who wrote a paper with a graduate student um, that basically said, um, you know, hey, we all, every Wall Street firm uses these risk models. And and the risk models think about the world in terms of these things called factors. And factors are not Tesla, but it's the S&P 500. It's not uh, a particular corporate bond. It's, you know, all AA credit paper or something like that. And so, you know, so one of the big finance things since 1992, uh, uh, when Fama and French wrote their paper on value and 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 small caps versus large caps was was people increasingly started to work look at the world in terms of different factors. So all that really means is, it, from our perspective, it means that if you were to look at a whole bunch of hedge funds, and you knew every position they own today, you could group them. You could say, you know, okay, they own this much in U.S. large cap stocks, this much in emerging market stocks, this much in U.S. small cap stocks. So you could kind of make these these big buckets. And, and what the papers basically showed is that if you can figure out what, how much they have in each of those buckets today, it looks an awful lot like how they're going to perform over the next month or two. Hmm. And so an example was in 2006, I had a meeting with a quant and he was describing this to me and, and I was 15 minutes into this and I'm not a quant by background. Thank God I have partners who are. Um, but the but he was describing it and I was saying, so wait, you've got this risk model where you just look at the reported returns of these hedge fund indices over the past couple of years. And and the model uses statistics to tell you, are they long or short the S&P and by how much? Mm-hmm. Are they long or short 10-year treasuries by how much? And I said, that's that's really interesting because because having sat with the hedge fund guys, as I mentioned, it's always about the big trades. Yep. Right. If you know, if if Seth Marman is not invested in the equity markets, but one of his peers is in 1995, guess who likely had a better year? Um, and so, so I asked him, I said, look, just because I need to understand these things in really concrete terms, what would it say today? And he went and ran the analysis and he said, wow, this is really strange. It says a 35% long exposure of emerging markets. And I said, then I'm, I'm pretty sure it's right because Every hedge fund that I knew was, this is 2006, was obsessed with brick companies. They were hopping on planes to go to China to count the number of 
cranes, you know, that they would see on the way in from the airport. They were buying cement companies. And so, so the idea of hedge fund replication is to look at a big pool of hedge funds, not try to figure out what one guy is doing and, and try to boil down their exposure, use these models to boil down their exposures today. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of reasons why, uh, so sorry to go back to this idea of then, then it, the reason people think of it as index like is because you're doing it to a lot of different funds. So you take the 20 largest managers hedge funds, 40 large equity long short hedge funds, and you get a lot of, but, and so just like if you were to do it on the stock market, you would take, you could do the same thing with a stock market, but you would pick 500 stocks. Oh, and lo and behold, you get the S and P 500, right. but, but you don't need us to get the S and P 500. You can just get the S and P 500. So, so what a lot of what, what people have always struggled with in the hedge fund land is, you know, I like equity long short in concept and, but I give it all to tiger global at the end of 2020 and I'm down 65% since then. That's really not the experience that I was expecting or, uh, you know, or I'm it's 2013 and I give it all to a great value investor like David Einhorn. And I'm sitting with him for years and years and years in the long value winter. And so, so what, what institutions have always done is they spread their bets. So they go into equity long short and they buy, they invest in a growth guy, a value guy, a sector specialist, an emerging government markets guy. But what are they doing? They're creating their own index. You know, they're trying to create something that matches the broad exposure to the category. You're losing the uh, purported value of the active management because you're no longer saying, I'm going to pick the 99th percentile active manager. If you're hiring half the managers in the industry, Absolutely. Look, and the person, if somebody could figure out who was going, everyone could figure out who what who has been the top guy. Yeah. Right. That's the easy part. The problem is today's top guy is very, very rarely tomorrow's top guy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he's often worse than average, you know, because he was neck deep in a particular trade that was on a roaring bull market. Um, and so but the reason this resonates with advisors is that the, the world of advisors is their whole fund selection process has two elements. The first is I build an asset allocation model and gear it and, and, and toggle it to my client's risk profile. Let's say it's 60, 40 on average. Um, but, Today, if you just do 60-40, you're competing with Vanguard and Vanguard's doing it for free or robo-advisors are doing it for 25 basis points, mm-hmm. you know, you say like, well, I want to do better than that. I want to include things that are going to add diversification value. The way you do that is you look at strategies, right? You don't say, I want a 60-40 portfolio plus a 5% position in Tesla, plus a 5% position in Thai equities, right? It's you think about it in terms of, do I want to add equity long short? Do I want to add managed futures? Do I want to add private equity? And so the first is coming up with an asset allocation model and thinking this mix of assets is going to get my clients to where I want them to be in 10 or 20 years. And and there's a lot of art and a lot of science that goes into that. But how you populate that model, every single sleeve of that model, every piece of the pie, the only objective is to match or outperform the benchmark, right? I mean, it's not, you don't, 
again, this goes back to you don't say I want I'm going to put in something that I have that has no correlation. I don't I have no idea how it's going to be whether it's even going to be around in five years. Right. So so the 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 problem is and 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 if it's the U.S. large cap equities, the easy answer is to say the S and P 500. Right? I'm never wrong. Every every time I sit down with a client, it's going to say the S and my S and P 500 index fund did 21.29 percent, and the underlying benchmark did 29.32 percent because it you know yep. it didn't have the, the you know like three basis points of fees in it. Sure. So so part of the growth of the whole index business is that people much much more greater parts of the wealth management world have started to think in terms of asset allocation models and the relationship among assets. So our contention is that it is, by the way, and if you're a if you're a pension planner, going back to what I was saying, and you decide you want to be, let's say, an equity long short, you'll have six or seven or eight different hedge funds in that bucket. But if you look at the position report of one of these hedge funds, it can run 15 or 20 pages. I mean, they have so many individual positions coming down. I've seen I've seen ones over 200 underlying line items of managers. But advisors don't do that. No advisor is going to sit down with a client that has $350,000 with them and say, I've taken your $350,000 and I've given $1,000 to 350 dif- different funds. <laughs> so it's going to be, so within each of the buckets, you need something from an asset allocation perspective that gives you ex- exposure to the category. Sure. And you need it in something in an ETF or a mutual fund because your clients aren't going to invest in that hedge fund. You don't want to tie up their illiquidity. And so the key thing about replication is it goes from the theory of these are their weights to being able to put it into an ETF or mutual fund completely seamlessly. And so, so the ETFs that we built are basically designed to be, I want equity long short. Oh, I'll just use this ETF. It replicates 40 hedge funds. It's in an ETF. And uh, I want managed futures. I'll just use this ETF. So, so to become the, the index-like default allocation. Now, one of the most interesting things over the past 10 years, I, I coined an expression in, in 2011. I said, I was sitting with a family office and I said, in hedge funds, fee reduction is the purest form of alpha. Right? And this was a hedge fund who had been uh, first round investors with uh, Bill Ackman, David Einhorn, Jana, it was, I mean, they were really, really early. They always did better than everybody else because they didn't pay what everybody else paid, right? They moved early with their money. They were really important, prestigious investors. And so if, if everybody else made 10, they made 15. It was like that kind of a, and so, and so that model has been adopted by the biggest institutional investors. And I was on a, a, a pension plan uh, a panel on hedge funds um, a year and a half ago. And I was so surprised because one of the guys at the pension plan said the way that we invest is to try to reduce fees because we believe fee reduction is a purest form of health. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, that is not who I expected to repeat that. But, but so the point is that replication often outperforms because when you copy these big factor positions, if you think that the hedge funds make $10, yeah. but you're paying away five in fees, and you're ending up with five. If we can copy eight efficiently and do it in a low cost vehicle, you might got get seven, not five. Yeah. So if I could think in terms of uh, like percentile performance here, 
um, I'm going to use abstract, you yeah. know, numbers. But if I have a replication product that the, the gross performance pre-fee is at the 30th percentile in the hedge fund industry, or maybe even the 20th percentile, but the no, fees, much but, higher. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. J- just for argument's sake, though, yeah. if you're at the 30th or 25th percentile and your fee structure is essentially exponentially lower uh-huh. on an after fee basis, you're going to be probably at the median or above the median. We're usually, and, and that's that's if the performance is is kind of low. Now imagine if the performance is average, but the fee structure is dramatically lower. Yeah, I I imagine on an after fee basis, that's going to put you around the eighty fifth, ninetieth, you know, in there. We're, yeah, we're usually in the ninety fifth percentile over time, and well, and it's and, and it's but it's 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 two parts, right? So if I, um, part number one is you reduce fees, right? So we can generally replicate between 80 and 100% of their pre-fee returns, depending upon the strategy. Sure. Um, and then we charge a lot less. Our fee savings range from anywhere to a couple hundred basis points, depending on the strategy, up to about 400 basis points net. So, but the other element of is, is replicating, just like the S&P 500 is generally a lot less risky than any of the 500 stocks because you get diversification across it. Replicating 20 managed futures funds is generally a lot less risky than trying to pick one of the 20. Mm. Replicating, so so what you end up happening is it's actually, it's it's the value investor model about performing, which is I, I consistently outperform through fee reduction. And in year one, there'll be plenty of guys who do better than me. But by year two or three, a lot of those guys have flamed out. And then there'll be new guys who will do better. And then they'll that's, flame out. That's so, just pure, that's pure Jack. Jack Bogle, uh, Boglehead philosophy. So I, ha- I have to ask, you know, this is the, th- we've been talking about the theory and we're going to talk about both ETFs, but I wanted to start with uh, DBEH. Sure. So that's the, that's the IMGP DBI hedge strategy ETF. And, and just reading my notes here, seeks to replicate the pre-fee returns of 40 leading equity long short hedge funds to deliver equity-like returns over time with less risk. Is that ETF? Is that basically the, uh, you know, the real world yeah. manifestation of of the theory that we're talking about? Yeah. So we we started to replicate equity long short as a category in 2012. Um, so we've been doing it now for 10 years, I guess. So this um, ETF is this ETF is now uh, a decade old. No, it's only three years old. So we started. Okay. We launched the 3D, and and there are a couple slightly different iterations, but but we've been doing this for a long time. So I want to do an aside for a second. What we do does not work with a lot of things. Sure. Right. So in 15 years, we've only launched, we, we, we do this with three different strategies, two of which are kind of similar. So because, because PE distressed, uh, you know, or merger arbitrage, all these kinds of hedge fund strategies, they're not going to work. They don't work with, with what we do. Right, right. Right. So, so in, in, in managed futures, they make all of their money on big trades where they long or short the dollar, where they long or short treasuries, equity long short, they make most of their money by, are they pivoting from value to growth? Are they, you know, are they adding or, de- or, or de-risking? Are they moving from the U S to emerging markets or vice versa? It's kind of these big factor rotations. Sure. Do not try to do this with millennium or DE Shaw or, merger art guys or PE. I mean, there are actually are PE replication products out there um, that do it. But what you basically end up with is a is a super volatile version of equities. Um, and that's really not what people want. 
Um, but the um, so the hedge fund, uh, you know, this factor based replication, it's it's not like it's going to completely replace the hedge fund industry and all the strategies in it. It's your firm is really focused on these hedge fund strategies that are are best replicated where where an ETF really would work. And so so with DBEH, that's what we're talking about is one right. of those one of those two core strategies, which is equity long short, right? Exactly. It's equity. So so here's how I think about equity long short, right? So you're first of all, from a diversification perspective, these guys are going to be long equities over time. Mm-hmm. Right. They like picking stocks more than shorting stocks. And so when you look at the data over time, the, the, your exposure to the markets is around 0.5, basically. Um, the way they add value as a group is, uh, is that they do make these shifts. So a great example was in 2020. Right? In 2020, these guys made two very, very good shifts. The first was they realized right as we were in April and May, they actually were increasing equity risk. Right. So we're in the midst of the lockdowns, there's hysteria. And these guys, now remember, these guys, a lot of these guys, or most of these guys, know every company that they own like the back of their hands. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're looking at this and they're looking at the state of the world and saying the markets have gone extreme. And plus the Fed has dropped rates. We're seeing fiscal backing. We're seeing all these different things happening. So what the world, a lot of people were saying, you know, we had had a bit of a bounce, but we were going to go right back down into the abyss. These guys were adding equity risk. That's a kind of a factor rotation. It's not a, I added risk on Monday and the markets went up. It's a more strategic equities were becoming more attractive given what was happening to interest rates. The other thing is though, that a lot of them had been huge buyers of FANG stocks. And you're hearing stories today about the guys who were really out over their skis on tech stocks. Mm -hmm. But a lot of guys had exposure. In fact, the most popular hedge fund positions were Bang stocks and stocks like it because these guys, you know, again, from a bottom up perspective in, in the 2010s, had realized that these guys had the most incredible business plans they'd ever seen. Like they have, I mean, they, they, Warren Buffett, who, you know, before he bought Apple, basically, he said, you know, he couldn't believe he missed Google. And he said, it's like somebody invented a cash register and put it in San Francisco. And anytime anybody went online anywhere, the cash register rang. Yeah. You know, and so, so hedge funds were pretty early in the 2010s that realizing these business models could keep compounding at rates far beyond what people were expecting. So, but then coming out of the uh, coming out of the COVID crisis, right? All those stocks went up, right? So it was the weirdest brief bear market that nobody expected, in that the value stocks, which already were highly valued, sorry, the growth stocks, which already had high valuations, and the value stocks, which had historically low valuations relative to the value stocks. They went. It went further. Yeah, the growth stocks went up more, and the value stocks went down. So these guys going into the summer were basically saying, like, do I want to add more to my Microsoft position that's now gone up sixty percent or something in three months and is now ten percent of my portfolio, or do I want to buy that cruise line over there that I don't think is going to be liquidated and bankrupted, and it's going to come back at some point? You know, do I want to buy that regional bank? Do I want to buy that commodity producer? And so what you saw, what we saw in the models was this migration into value. And and again, the way that we see it in our portfolios is not that they're buying this stock or that stock, but it's rather these kind of big rotations. And so mm-hmm. they shift from, you know, NASDAQ, or we don't see, we don't see NASDAQ growing as they're increasing their allocations, but all of a sudden we see US small caps going. Well, US small caps have more 
oil and gas companies, banks, retailers, things like that, that you would kind of expect to see in a more value-based portfolio. So the idea of equity long short is, you know, people love to talk about this guy owns this stock and why he's going to be right. And, and there, there's huge value from that, that advisors and family office people often get from reading the letters because they're, because it's, they're, they're great stories. It sounds, you get a sense as to how people are thinking. Um, but from a, a, from an, model allocation perspective, that stuff doesn't really matter. What matters is you have something that complements your portfolio. So I view equity long short as being able to deliver with about half the risk of the equity markets. The goal is to generate about 200 basis points of excess returns over time net of fees. And if you can do that, then then that's 200 basis points of alpha. And then it has a role in a diversified portfolio. And and it goes from the equity allocation into that. Yeah, and, typic- typically that kind of um, strategy available in a hedge fund uh, to institutional investors or ultra high net worth, large family offices, with very high investment minimum. So what this ETF is doing is essentially, you know, bringing that liquid product to market, making it accessible to retail investors. So, um, you know. Frankly, that's amazing is how much innovation has occurred in the ETF world in, in the past 10 years. Um, and Andrew, I want to put a pin in our conversation here um, because for our viewers and listeners, I want to talk about Andrew's other ETF as well and the other strategy. So we're going to bring Andrew back for part two of our episode, talking more about hedge funds as well as managed futures. Um, so be on the lookout for that episode coming shortly. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.